I'm Chad Main, the founder of Legal Services Company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal innovation, legal technology, and the impact tech is having on the law. Today's episode, we talk to one of the founders and the CEO of Hunit. It's a company that lets users create smart legal contracts and store information on the blockchain. On today's show, I'm talking to Aaron Powers. He's one of the founders of Hunit. It's a company that lets users make SLCs, or smart legal contracts. These are digital contracts, but they use natural language and are drafted in Microsoft Word. Hunit also uses blockchain technology to record certain aspects of contractual relationships, such as keeping track of performance of contractual terms, and to make an immutable record of the fact that the parties to a contract even entered into the relationship in the first place. Over the years, we've had a bunch of legal tech founders on the show that didn't come from legal backgrounds. But Aaron Powers may have the most interesting non-legal background so far. Aaron is a business guy and entrepreneur first and foremost. He started his career in the mobile phone and voiceover IP technology space in the early 2000s, but ultimately he joined the founding team of a biostimulant company. If you don't know what that is, I didn't either, and I had to look it up. According to the European Biostimulant Industry Council, of which Aaron is also a founder, biostimulants are substances and or microorganisms whose function when applied to plants is to stimulate natural processes to benefit nutrient uptake, nutrient use efficiency tolerance, to abiotic stress and or crop quality independently of its nutrient content. So, to my non-ag mind, it sounds like fertilizer that isn't as harmful as chemicals. But, I digress. Let's get back to Aaron and founding Hunit. After almost a decade at the biostimulant company, Aaron jumped over to Legal Tech and founded Hunit. And I would say it's quite a jump. So I had to ask him, what's the connection? What drew him to Legal? The red thread through everything has been when I see that there is a technological advance that enables a disruptive approach to a mature industry. Entrepreneurship and early stage company development, is, it's a skill like any other and it takes development. And so to the extent I'm, I, I, I was not a specialist in any of these areas before I got started, I at least was aware enough to see that there was something that was happening here that was of significance. And we were able to, uh, me and my partners and whatever those ventures were, put together an early pioneer in, those, in that space. And so what we did with the biostimulant space was exciting because it ended up creating a whole new category of crop inputs, ones that are very much aligned around the environmental goals of today. When we got started, there was no name for that category. And when we concluded, we had, you know, amongst other things, put together a uh, industry association for those types of products that now includes all of the majors, you know, 50 odd companies. So it, it was a game changer for a certain aspect of that market. And then I think we're on the same path or a similar path here with, with smart legal technology, smart legal contract technology. That's kind of the theme. I mean, you hit, a, hit the nail on the head. Now I see it. You like tech, you're a tech guy, and you like applying that to an industry that maybe tech isn't always front of mind. So agriculture, obviously, that is still one of the most labor-intensive, you know, manual industries out there, although tech is very important to it now. But then we moved to legal. So how'd you make that jump from ag to legal? I mean, they're very different industries. One's a knowledge industry. What we'd like to say about our use case applicability in this new company and the legal tech, legal sector generally is that it's, yes, it's one sector, but it touches every, every other one. And so throughout all these processes of building these companies and, and exiting some of them and, and everything goes along with those kind of journeys, you end up being very heavy users of, of the legal industry. You understand, you know, uh, soon enough the ins and outs of, of how to achieve what you want using legal service providers. And so we certainly were not uh, neophytes uh, in terms of how the sector works. We certainly were close enough to understand where there were some significant inefficiencies. 
Keep in mind that also the, the majority, the value benefit of smart legal contracts accrues to the people that use them. Those are the companies and individuals signing commercial agreements or, or making um, investments, private market investments using digitalized instruments. They're the ones that are really gaining here. I mean, the legal profession or the legal services industry is, is a key channel partner in this advancement, but we don't look at them really as, as the end client per se. They're more of the long buckets of, like I said, channel partners, distributors. We're providing them a tool set that extends their ability to generate value for their customers, also gives them some real competitiveness in a crowded market where everybody's competing for business. But at the same time, uh, it's the value that the client receives that is the main driver. Am I reading too much into it? But am I hearing maybe that your wallet was talking to you and all the lawyers you hired before would cost you a little bit of money and the inefficiency might have added to the bills? Jokes about lawyers and Rolexes exist for a reason, right? And and I think that that was one of the things we did something, I guess, that was probably worth a bit of a side note, which we did something that I recommend any entrepreneur do at the beginning of a journey, which is we called it listening to her. And it was essentially customer focus groups that we did with law firms and in-house counsel across six different countries and dozens of firms. And we talked about a number of things. I mean, not just only the space that we're interested in, but you know, what keeps them awake at night? What are the things that they think are going to be changing their industry in the next six, 12, 18 months? And one of the things that emerged out of that was a real focus on billing model evolution. There is a, a fairly widespread recognition that time multiplied by a rate equal value is, is something that is perhaps no longer true in the technified environment we're in today. And you see the experimentation around subscription services, around project-based billing. And so the there is a misalignment by using time multiplied by rate. And that misalignment creates discord where there shouldn't be. Uh, you should never have that question about you know, the interests of your lawyer, and, and nor should you feel that the value that they create has been billed inappropriately. The value of, of good legal services is it's inv- I mean, it's, it's invaluable, right? right? Anybody that's taken a shortcut on a contract up front and had to pay dearly to right. try to fix that thing it knows how important it is. But nonetheless, people walk away with a bad taste in their mouth. And that's, and that's a, an eventuality that we think is, is unfortunate and clearly the one the industry is trying to, to address. And so the idea that smart legal contracts have, well, essentially they have the ability to capture revenue for the firm at the point of creation, meaning at the point when actions are taken, when execution is, is occurring, and many times guided by the automation embedded in the agreement itself. Before we jump in real deep to the smart legal contract, I want to do two things here. I'd like you to give me the one-minute cocktail spiel about what Hewnit does. And then from there, before you get into the nitty-gritty and the nuts and bolts of Hewnit, there's a few concepts I want you to define because I think it'll put the conversation in context. But let's start with, tell me what Hewnit does. Hewnit provides a platform and a set of tools to legal practitioners that allow them to write legal agreements for their clients that are natively digital and have the ability to, to execute tasks in the real world. Two parts to the puzzle. One is word integration, so it allows the allows lawyers to basically take a natural language agreement, very similar to what they're using today, and embed automation directly in that agreement that's informed by the natural language. So um, numbers, terms, things like that are being pulled from the natural language text in order to inform the automation. And then secondly is a platform where uh, using distributed ledger technology, which is the same technology that underpins you know much of the crypto world and everything else, for us, it serves the role of providing indelibility of the legal agreement. The legal agreement there is stored there um, or recorded there, and that's where it lives out its life cycle. So it's that two-part stack. So perfect. You gave me a lot of the terms I wanted you to define that will go into deeper detail. Explain the difference between a smart legal contract and smart contract, because smart contract, people are probably going to conflate the two, but smart contracts are something unique to blockchain technology. might be a misnomer. 
might be a misnomer as to what a smart contract is versus the smart legal contract, the problem you're trying to solve. You hit the nail on the head. This is one of the major issues that we've had. And it's a really, it's a communications oriented issue in that the term smart contract has been so confusing for so many legal stakeholders. In that listening tour that I, I mentioned earlier, one of the things that we found was that lawyers were having a hard time seeing how smart contracts could be used inside of the practice of law as they knew it today. And the reason for that is that smart contracts were designed for a very different purpose. Their original technological hypothesis was to create an environment where anonymous parties can transact without counterparty risk. And that's in the power of the whole DeFi sector. And they are phenomenally useful in certain contexts. The problem is what they aren't. They are not an expression of a binding legal commitment uh, under, under the legal and re regulatory framework that we work in today. I read that in the white paper, but I wanted to ask you about that because sure. you say they're not legally binding, but at some level they are because historically, or the main use case so far has been in decentralized finance, DeFi. And usually it's, I give you some asset, usually cryptocurrency, and in exchange, I'm getting some other sort of financial asset, like what well, could be derivative. It could be another cryptocurrency, whatever. But that to me, it's an agreement and it's legally binding. If I pay you X, you give me Y. When you say those aren't legally enforceable contracts, how are you distinguishing that from the enforceability of a smart legal contract? Let me answer this question with one caveat, which is we've only really looked at this in depth from the perspective of English and Welsh law. Right. And so there is a lot of commonality between common law systems, but this is not directly applicable to North America, at least uh, without further research. Under English law, there are a number of requirements for what constitutes a, a legally binding agreement. There's I guess five or six elements that need to be present. Um, one is uh, essentially a statement of intention by the parties to have an agreement. Smart contracts are entirely code-based. Put that point into question, I right? think. Mm -hmm. The second is that a court needs to be able to rectify, for example, an agreement, a legally binding agreement. And the fatalistic execution of a smart contract, which was something I'll get to in a second, prevents that from occurring, right? And this goes back to that original hypothesis around what are these things going to be used for if the intention was not from the outset to create something that would withstand a challenge in a litigation, then they had to look at, well, if, without the backstop of the law, what can we use? And the only thing that we could use really was, was a fatalistic execution paradigm, meaning that the moment you start a smart contract, it can't be stopped until it reaches end point. But in an environment where force majeure events occur, in an environment where a court needs to be able to rectify a contract, and that is something that's encoded, enshrined in, in the regulatory code of, of the English jurisdiction, then if it doesn't have those elements, then it's not a valid expression of a, of a legally binding commitment or agreement. And so that leads me to the next definition I wanted you to explain. You've already, you've already touched on it once, is one of the things that the, your smart legal contracts adds that a smart contract doesn't necessarily have is what you call natural language. Explain what that is. Well, I mean, natural language is essentially what, uh, uh, what is used today to describe a legal agreement. We base our agreements on a natural language text, and we embed automation in there for, for a couple of reasons. One is this question of interpretation. Two, first of all, coding as a skill set is not well represented in the legal industry, nor is it well represented inside of courts, alternative dispute resolution systems. And finally, is it very difficult to try to bring a customer or a client, or somebody signing one of these agreements into the fold when it comes to their understanding of what the agreement means and what, how it's going to perform. And so the question of interpretation is significant when you're using this backstop of the law. When there is no backstop of the law, then the code is everything. 
that is the first and final line of defense against malfeasance or, or mis-execution. So therefore, it's critical that you have somebody that really understands the code and can operate at that level. When it comes to natural language, there's a second element, which is, I mean, using our own shareholder agreement as an example, it's 58 pages long, and there's about 27 locations where there is a, an element that is viable for contract automation or for, for automatic execution. Which means that from the perspective of kind of daily payload, you know, 90 odd percent of the total agreement is being expressed in natural language. And so only a small fraction is really relevant for the type of code that you'd be looking at to script when you're creating a self-executing terms. And so we felt that trying to push an entire industry, an entire sector towards a code-based future was going to be much more challenging ask and, and was, you know, fraught with, with adoption chain risk. Uh, and finally, I, there was one additional aspect that I think probably makes sense to touch upon when it comes to legal enforceability is that consumer protection law has, especially in the UK, there's, there are some very specific rules around what types of contracts, for example, can be annulled or, or canceled by a consumer you know, within certain amounts of time. And then secondly, there is a, um, a consumer right to transparency and understanding, clarity of understanding. So if you're going to get a smart legal contract, for example, that is, you know, encapsulates your mobile phone subscription, and you can't understand a word that it says, then clearly there would be a problem there in reconciling that with consumer law around transparency that, of the commercial terms you're entering, entering into. So, so those were all kind of the, the kind of drivers that pushed us away from, from a code-based future. Um, and finally, we, there is such an incredible body of intellectual property represented in today's legal services industry. And that these are the templates that every law firm has built up over years of experience that to take a total departure from providing a path towards the applicability of that intellectual property in the future was also going to be a challenge. So this allows us to basically take what's there and enhance it. Is this an oversimplification if I say that a unit smart legal contract is kind of like a smart contract, but it's augmented with natural language so you can interpret it, so you can go to court and the court can figure out a remedy. For instance, going back to your force majeure example, mm -hmm. uh, natural language will tell you what the party's expected to do if the contract couldn't be completed because of natural disaster. A smart contract probably doesn't have that. So it, it, is that a okay way of, of describing a smart legal contract? A smart contract augmented by natural language? From a helicopter overview? Absolutely. There, there's a few more things to it. I mean, if, for example, the, the, the role of the public and private key was something we haven't really touched right. upon yet. You know, in the DeFi space, nothing can happen without private key. And so that makes, for example, execution of, or, or let's say, respective title law a challenge sometimes. I mean, it may be an urban legend, but there's that story about the, the fellow that was... Um, uh, divorcing and had a lot of money in Bitcoin that he had, you know, spent very little on early many years ago, and he claimed to the court and you know in divorce proceedings that he, ah, he didn't have access to his private key, and right. you know they didn't believe him, put him in, in jail for for contempt of court, and a year later he got out, and now he's enjoying his <laughs> Bitcoin. In, in a, you know, and so the, when when you are unable to enforce a court ruling, there's also some real challenges. So we 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 have configured our distributed ledger technology so that the way that the legal system operates today can continue, let's say, in this new technified environment. Let's talk about that. You just said it. That was the next question I was going to ask you. Explain distributed ledger technology, and then let's talk about how Hunit's using that within these smart legal contracts. I like to look at things kind of from a historical context. Two things that I think are important. One is blockchain is a subsector, if you want, or a subtype of distributed ledger technology. And distributed ledger, you know, if you look at you know, single entry accounting. That was, you know, the, a great uh, innovation of the Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia, third century BC. Then you had double entry accounting that was basically the Medici family in Florence, and, 
in, in the, during the Enlightenment. And now we have n-entry accounting, right? So distributed ledger is essentially everybody gets a copy of the ledger. And you use a consensus mechanism, and those will vary according to protocol. But essentially, that's what's happening when you're mining. Consensus meaning that everybody that has a copy of the distributed ledger agrees that the copy they have is the right one, the correct, accurate yeah. one. And if not, it's the, the software fixes that and, and, and guides you and points you to the right copy. Exactly. And what that allows for, and, and you know, the great innovation with that is it allows for digital uniqueness. When everybody has a shared copy of the ledger, everybody's, you know, the presumption is that everybody's mutually distrustful. And, and therefore, you're able to create a digital record that is immutable. The immutability is being enforced by the fact that it is distributed amongst a number of holders. And so for smart legal contracts, what that means is that in our network array, each one of our licensees is a node in, in our distributed ledger network. A node being the, the, they have a copy of it and they validate transactions. Exactly. And they validate transactions. They validate changes to that record, which means that for the most part, our licensees are regulated service providers. So they have an inherent interest in maintaining the integrity of the agreements they write for their clients. And so this means that they are basically taking a stake in guaranteeing that the agreements that they write for their clients are, are accurate on and, and cannot be tampered with. So by default, if I'm a law firm using Hewnit, I also become a, a validating node? You become a validating node. Exactly. Okay. And there's a number of reasons around that. Some of it has to do with uh, compliance with data protection laws and also sometimes compliance with internal payment uh, data protection mandates inside of a firm. And so we provide some flexibility around where the underlying data storage is occurring. Because it, once you get into consumer data or, or client data, there are some, especially under English law, there are some very specific rules that need to be respected. So the way that we have arranged these nodes allows for some flexibility in how some of the underlying data is being stored. And we should point out, too, the concept of decentralization. Generally, decentralization yeah. means anybody can have access to the ledger. Anybody, if they have the right resources, can become a validator, validating node. But this is not a decentralized distributed ledger. It is decentralized in that there are, is no centralizing agent that is arranging or organizing the, the network. You have two, two categories. You have permissioned and permissionless. And so Bitcoin or Ethereum, those are permissionless, meaning anybody can spin up a copy of the software and run a node, validating node, start mining. Whereas permissioned, and there's a number of examples, you know, for example, Quora uh, is, is a good example of a permissioned network. Traditionally, permissioned networks have been primarily focused around enterprise automation or enterprise uh, uh, operational efficiency, but not exclusively. And in our environment, we run a permissioned network, meaning that to, to gain access is not difficult or costly, um, but, but nonetheless, we vet the nodes that are coming in simply because we, we don't see any real benefit to providing a permissionless, and we see a lot of potential downside. Well, don't attorney-client privilege issues, too, and confidentiality issues, don't that feed into it? Not everybody can have access to this data because they may not be authorized to look at it, right? Well, you can store encrypted data inside of a distributed network. And so um, we have very strict privacy controls around who can see what. Those can be set from smart legal contracts, smart legal contracts, what, what visibility external parties have. And so that's, that's a little bit of a separate issue, but we're not seeing the benefit to allowing people that are not legal system stakeholders to essentially interact inside the environment. We have sizable ambitions in terms of what that means, in terms of um, how far we can extend into the network. So by no means are we trying to keep this a small walled garden, but nonetheless, we don't have the same drivers around decentralization or permissionless decentralization as, for example, DeFi does. When we come back in just a couple of minutes, Aaron talks about the functionality of Hewnit and how it works. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal.
we need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. Hey, if you want to subscribe to Technically Legal, you can find us pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like us enough, hope you'll give us a favorable review. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or email me at cmain at percipient.co. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Aaron Powers of Hewnit. He's just about to get into the nuts and bolts of the app. First of all, we start with a standard docx file. We're working all of our automation tags are being embedded directly into the XML of, of the docx file. When you say an automation tag, what is being automated? As you're working with these things, one of the things we're very uh, mindful of is that every law firm has its own work process flows. They have their own t- templating systems. And the one common denominator in all of these different constellations is Word. Right? That's the kind of basic operating system. So um, we start off with a Word plugin that allows you to – we basically have, we have drop-down menus that um, have what we call auto-covenants. And auto-covenant is kind of our trademark term for embeddable automation that pulls values that it needs to know in order to fulfill its task from the natural language text. So if, for example, we're dealing with an issue having to do with information rights, so submission of management accounts, uh, when we get to that part in the natural language agreement, you would go into the sidebar to, uh, of, the, of Word, select a polling type of auto covenant. It's kind of the, the first selection. Then underneath you, we have several types of reporting. Here, if you wanted to, you could select document-based reporting, which means that on whatever recurring basis you you specify, the smart legal contract will expect the company's management to provide a document via the agreement itself that is forwarded to investors that constitutes the management accounts. To embed that, you select the formula, the auto covenant. It will tell you these are the four to five to six, whatever different variables are for that particular type. Uh, you identify those variables in the natural language simply by hi- highlighting uh, and then clicking apply in, inside the, uh, the, the sidebar. Uh, and once you, that's fully configured, then then that particular auto covenant is ready to go. Um, using the example of information rights, and you're using a document-based reporting, and keep in mind, we could also support structured uh, data reporting should you want to do it that way instead. But document-based reporting is flexible. You can send a PDF or an Excel, whatever the company management thinks is the best way to send their management accounts. But the smart legal contract won't know if if those accounts have been submitted in good faith or whether it's just a bunch of blank pages, right? They're they're trying to fool the system. And so the way that we can control for that is to use a second auto covenant in what we call a a stacking configuration, meaning that seven days after a document has been submitted, uh, according to the the original uh, automation, then it'll send a poll to the investors. um, And it will ask, that poll will ask, were the accounts that you received valid a representation of management accounts, would be satisfactory. And so in order to provide 
that functionality, you need to define for the auto covenant who to ask, what to ask them, how long they have to respond, and how to resolve a new answer, for example. Um, the smart legal contract, once you have gone through this process and defined things having to do with you know, uh, subscriptions of shares or distributions of dividends or whatever it is, the points that the legal practitioner feels are appropriate for automation, and you've gone back and forth in whatever negotiating style you're using today. Are you doing it in teams? Are you doing it as you know, an email attachment between you and your counterparty? Uh, once everybody's fine and happy with the agreement as it stands, then the, the licensee, here the authoring lawyer, then essentially sends it first to the Hewnet platform for a signing flow, meaning that it'll be uploaded. It, you will identify who will be signing that contract if they're not already onboarded onto the platform, onboarding process will be triggered. So everybody then has been onboarded. They're presented with a signable digital document on their screen, which they use a mobile app in order to authenticate. Once it's been signed, the natural language and the word XML gets converted to a, our version of chain code, which runs inside of our, what we call an SLC wrapper, which is in here that the, the vernacular becomes challenging. We actually have a smart contract wrapper that is the receptacle for the smart legal contract mm -hmm. data. When you say wrapper, in meaning that not converted per se, but there's other code wrapped around it that can be put on a distributed ledger. Is that? We did not want to embark upon creating our own DLT network from scratch, a distributed ledger network. Uh, the, what's out there has been pressure tested and developed over you know thousands or tens of thousands of developer hours. And so it was important for us to find applicability with what was already there. And the way that we solve for that is that we use a, a commonly used smart contract platform and we have created a smart contract-based wrapper that allows a smart legal contract to execute upon its life cycle in accordance with the rules that have been defined within it, and as well with in accordance with the rules that are applied to it externally. Right? So this is the issues around legal com compatibility with the legal and regulatory framework. What then is being stored on a ledger? versus what's still in the Word contract? It's the editing and negotiation process that occurs in Word. And once it has been sent for signature and is signed, that Word document and the automation that's embedded in it is converted to a chain code version. And that chain code is what is recorded on the distributed ledger network. And that's what goes ahead and con you know, completes its life cycle. Of course, if you interact with it, uh, if you signed one and then you come back, you know, a year later, a month later, you know, to, to look at what, what were the terms, maybe there's something we want to change here. You go back and review, I mean, the interface that you read as uh, in the human legible version of it looks like a word processing document anyway. But what's happening underneath is that it's ch being changed from kind of an editing mode into a, a contract execution mode. The white paper mentions that one of the benefits of a smart legal contract versus a smart contract is prevention of fraud. Why do you believe that to be true? Because they're both kind of electronic contracts, but the smart legal contract, obviously, there's more components to it. You can make the argument that almost no commercial activity can happen in DeFi without a smart contract because of the lack of you know, smart legal contract technology. There's the misnomer, right? I mean, it's a transaction, not necessarily a legal contract, right? That's kind of what you hit on earlier. I mean, it, smart contracts can do a lot of things. I mean, it, famously, what was it, the Crypto Kitties? What, you know, there was some some goofy little nonsense application that just about took down Ethereum in the early days. You know, it was you know, it was just a smart contract, but it had no real function. Right. Smart contracts don't necessarily have to be specifically for transactions, but that was that was their origin point, and that was what they're optimized for. The smart legal contracts, the way that they're able to prevent fraud is by preventing or mitigating the potential for 
mis-execution by humans, right? So if you look at so-called push payment fraud, there's some statistics in the paper, but my recollection was it was some 400 odd million pounds a year, 150,000 instances of this stuff reported per year in the UK. And it's a fairly common scheme where basically people, somebody sits in the middle, watches an email flow when an invoice gets sent from a supplier to a client, then they spoof an email address and, and, and come in afterwards saying, by the way, please pay to this bank account instead of the one that's in the invoice. And, and people do so because they think it looks like a bona fide agreement. So when execution is subject to automation, taking the ability for a human who may be able to be deceived out of the equation, generally is, it's an important way of preventing fraud. And give an example of that. Give an example of execution, contractually related execution that historically a human may have had to do that now can be automated by human. Just take the example of push payment fraud. The smart legal contract will specify the payment account, meaning that you have a source of truth as the purchaser. If you receive an email from somebody claiming, no, you should pay you know, into this different account, you, you can know right off the bat that that's an attempt to at fraud. You don't, you don't have to comply. When you say that it's specified the account, is it similar to a blockchain or a cryptocurrency transaction now where it's kind of wallet to wallet and you know that you're going to the right place because of the wallet's hash and all that? Or is it really the account number at a bank or whatever? Are the contracts going that deep at this point where it's using kind of cryptological transactions and verify them that way? You touched on a really important point. And one of the things that's very important for a smart legal contract to do is interact with the real world. For smart contracts are very much focused on what can be done and expressed and manipulated on chain. That's their area of operation. Whereas a smart legal contract needs to be able to interact with the real world. We have what we call ecosystem services. These are standalone services that a smart legal contract will connect to when it needs to perform certain types of activity. And those will be paired up with auto covenants meant to trigger them. So to jump back a minute to that polling auto covenant, when you have specified in the agreement who to ask, what to ask them, and how long they have to answer, when that automation is triggered, the smart legal contract will contact our polling platform, polling engine, and give it the instructions the polling engine will perform those tasks and respond back. We use the same model for banking. We have, of course, the capability to handle on-chain transactions, and arguably they're a lot easier. But the overwhelming lion's share of what goes on in commercial transactions today are involving bank-to-bank transfers. And so it's very important for us to be able to accommodate or integrate with the global banking system. So we have um, what we call our settlement engine. We are integrated in some underlying API-based banking providers. That gives us large blocks of IBANs or bank account numbers, virtual IBANs, that we can associate to individual transactions or to individual agreements. So it gives you the ability, in this case, to essentially send money to a legal agreement. The legal agreement receives that, processes it as you've specified, and then forwards it on. Right? So this can be an example of, you know, if you're making an interest payment, if you're a company that's issued a bond to investors, then you can make one lump sum payment to the smart legal contract that verifies that your obligations under the agreement have been met. Uh, and then the smart legal contract will go ahead and send out the pro rata amounts that are due to each individual investor. And, so, and all of that occurs inside the global banking system, but controlled by the smart legal contract. So one of the cool things I saw that because these are digital contracts, there's a sandbox component to Hunit where you can test things out. How does that work? It's very similar to software audits, right? And, and the way that you can do quality insurance on, on software today, it allows any user to take a draft smart legal contract and run it through an engine that will essentially test every possible permutation. And in an audit report, you can match up this automation 
and the outcomes that were they what we expected? Did it match the natural language description that the automation is paired with? And it's clearly not a solution for all types of drafting errors, but we're all familiar with, you know, there's always some some story about a hundred million dollars lost because of a comma in the wrong place or something like that. And and so it doesn't resolve all of those issues, but it certainly does resolve issues around well, for the first time it allows a way to comprehensively test at least a portion of the legal agreement before it goes into effect. A couple of things I think to note there, one of the things we also were mindful of when we're building the platform is that counterparties need to be able to work with these things, even if they're not a licensee, meaning that if you're a lawyer that has decided to, to use units technology, you should be able to send these agreements to your counterparty lawyer without them having to become a licensee as well. And so the word plugin, the ability to audit or test a legal agreement, all of those features are available to anybody. What you are getting as a licensee, of course, is then the ability to send a, a legal agreement to for a signature and actually enter into effect. That's really cool. It, it, you keep going back to the fact that, hey, although everything's moving to Web3, to blockchain, you still got to deal with the real world. And I noticed uh, one of your favorite quotes I saw was from uh, Buckminster Fuller. And the quote is, you never change things by fighting existing reality. To change something, you build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And that's really what you're trying to do here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Legal instruments, the practice law generally is one of the great analog holdouts. Clearly, there's been a huge amount of process improvement around the creation of the legal instrument. So you've got AI-powered discovery tools. You've got all sorts of drafting uh, tools, templating systems. But at the end of the day, what's still being produced is words on paper or, or a digital picture of words on paper. And the idea that that is not going to be digitalized, you know, in 2023, 2024 and beyond. It's a non-starter. This is an area that is, here I don't have any numbers, but I would imagine that the percentage of global financial transactions that occur pursuant to a legal obligation, it has to be the overwhelming majority thereof. And so the idea that this space is going to continue to be using centuries-old technology in the form of analog legal agreements from now moving forward, it's a non-starter. So the question now is, what's going to be the model that is the one that really it serves the industry and its clients the best. Aaron, thanks a lot. People want to learn more about you and Hewnit. Where do you want them to go? Hewnit.com. Easy. We have a news flow. There we've got posts from what we're doing out there in terms of thought leadership. Chad, you mentioned the paper that we recently released with the UK Jurisdictional Task Force, which is a, an organ of the, the Ministry of Justice in the UK. And that is a comprehensive analysis of how smart legal contract can be applied to the practice of law today is a very practical, nuts and bolts type of approach um, meant to, to supplement what's been out there before, which has really been a little bit more theoretical, let's say, in, in terms of um, its analysis. Beyond that, we are now just in the final run-up to launch. So we are busily working to make sure that all the final bits and pieces are in place. Um, and we have a set of launch customers that are really excited about the platform. So please reach out. We'd be happy to provide any additional information to anybody listening today. Um, certainly law firms and, and other stakeholders in, in the legal sector. Well, that's it for another episode of Technically Legal. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can catch us on most major podcasting platforms like Stitcher, Google, Apple, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. If you like us enough, I hope you leave us a nice review. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. Until next time, thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Technically Legal.